Do we have any gardeners in the room today? When the lights come up, I'll be able to see you. We have any gardeners? Put your hands in the air. Anybody? Nobody? One, two. You guys can follow me home. Yeah, there we go. Really proud up in the balcony. You guys can follow me home after the service today. Um, we, uh, we bought a house about a year ago. And um, it's really interesting kind of the way seasons change and things like that. We're seeing these things come to life. Um, come to life in our yard. We uh, found out that we have a blueberry bush in our front yard. We have a fig tree growing by our front door. Um, I don't know how to make fig newtons or what you do with the fig tree. <laughs> Fig trees, but we've got one if anybody wants to come grab some. Um, evidently, there's some strawberry, there's strawberry plants in the backyard, which no one would really be able to know because of the weeds, the way they've overtaken back there. I'm still working on that whole thing. Um, but what we're seeing is the fruit of someone's labor. We are able to, because I do like blueberries, we're able to reap what someone else has sown. And there's this really deep biblical principle that underlies that, that we reap what we sow, the fruit that is born in our lives is evidenced by what we sow, by what we invest ourselves in. We reap what we sow. This, this biblical concept also just kind of translates into life overall. Um, for whatever action we have, there is a consequence. For whatever thing we do, there's something that comes after it. The way that we live and work and interact with others, we impact one another. Sometimes these consequences, these things that we do, they're good, right? So we plant a blueberry seed. I get blueberries on, um, on my Cinnamon Life cereal in the morning. There's a good consequence uh, to that action. And then there are times where our, the consequence of our actions um, are just not so good. The things that we do are the things that we're not proud of. And, and I'm, I'm the type of person, and you may be too, that um, I like to do things um, that have a good payoff on the other side of them, right? I'm not one who is aiming for pain or hurt for myself or for others. And so when I do something, that action, the outcome of that action, I want it to be positive. I want it to be positive for others. I want it to be positive for myself. But this morning, we're not just going to talk about doing things in terms of payoff for others or payoff for ourselves. We're actually going to look at negative consequences, the other side of that equation. Not I do good so others get good or I do good so I get good. But sometimes I do wrong. Sometimes I fail and I bear the consequence of that. I get it wrong. I'm going to fail. I'm going to let myself down. I'm going to offend others. I may offend you this morning. I'm going to sin against God. And guess what? It's not just me. It's you too. We're in this together. This idea of failure, it is a common life experience that we all bring to the table. We've done things that we are not proud of. We've done things that have caused hurt to ourselves and to others. We're all in this boat together. Isn't this the way you wanted to start your Sunday morning? It's confessing that we're all failures but it's truth. It is reality for us. And we spend a lot of our lives wandering around trying to cover up the fact that we are failures. We try to act like it didn't happen. We try to not admit it. We try not to get caught. We try to sweep it under the rug so no one will see or even know the difference. But the truth is, this is something we experience on a day-in, day-out basis. In some way, we all experienced failure at some point in time this week. 
as a leader, as a, a friend, as a neighbor, as a coworker, as a parent, as a spouse. In some way, we failed. We messed up. And I'm not telling you something that you don't already know. This is not just me pointing out the obvious. But the truth is, it's in the midst of identifying with, with connecting with the fact that we fail, that we actually see our deepest need for God's provision for us in Jesus. Jesus gave his life for failures, not just for folks who have it all together. And so this morning, as we kind of identify around that common idea that we mess up, that we fail, that we offend, and we're all in this boat together, we have to rally around that idea, not just in self-wallowing, not just saying like, yeah, me and you, we're in this together, all right, so we're just kind of like gonna fester an ideal of, idea of, of failing. But that it's in this, in this concept, this identification, that we see that Jesus came to die for, for us. So sometimes we fail and, uh, and we didn't mean to, right? We, we make a misstep, we move in a wrong direction, we messed up, we offended somebody unintentionally, we um, made a, a bad business decision unintentionally, we, we caused an offense and it really wasn't the, the goal on the front end, but it was the byproduct on the back end. And then there are some times where we dive into failure headlong. We know exactly what we're getting into we know that the end outcome may be something that's offensive towards us, toward, towards someone else, but we're going to dive into it anyway. And so this morning, as we're in this concept of in the wilderness, we find ourselves there again. We find ourselves in the wilderness, but this time it's a wilderness of our own making. It's not a place that we found ourselves where we are inside of God's will, but feel outside of God's blessing. This time we are outside of God's will and we are outside of God's blessing. Like Jacob said a few weeks ago, this morning the text we're going to look at is trying to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way, trying to provide on our own. But as we dive into this, I'm going to, I'm going to, start, I'm going to start our time together with this phrase, and we will wrap up our time together with this phrase. So I, I want it to be kind of like this marinade that we sit in during our time together. So we don't get lost in the idea of failing, but there's this hope that is kind of like shining above us the entire time. And this truth is that in Christ, our failure is always met with the hope of redemption every single time. In Christ, our failure is always met with the hope of redemption. And we're gonna look at Numbers chapter 20 this morning to kind of see a picture of this and God's provision for his people. So we're gonna be in Numbers chapter 20 and we're gonna take this in several different chunks uh, this morning. We're gonna start in uh, verse two. This is Numbers chapter 20, starting in verse two. It says, now there was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we have perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain, or figs, or vines, or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. So we see a situation happening here, and an old issue, but to a new generation. We see the people of Israel, they've been wandering around the desert now for 40 years. They're at the end of their time of wandering. 
And they come before Moses again, and they are saying something that we have heard once before. If you flipped back to Exodus chapter 17, you would see a scenario that plays out in really similar ways. The people come to Moses and Aaron, um, Moses the first time, Moses and Aaron the second time, and they complain. They say that there's no water for us here. We might as well have died in the past with our, um, with our, our forefathers, with those who came before us, generations before so we see this scenario and it's kind of like, um, it's like that old Bill Murray movie, Groundhog Day, you know what I'm talking about? Um, where it's the same thing that happens over and over and over again. There are a lot of situations as we walk through the Exodus and watch the people of Israel, there are these situations that, that sound similar or look familiar. Well, this one's identical. The people come to Moses, they say, we're thirsty, there's nothing for us to drink, there's nothing even for our cattle to drink, we might as well have died before. Why have you brought us to this evil place? And they're actually just on the other side of the promised land. They're just about to cross over. But why have you brought us to this evil place that we would die? We see the same issues, but with a new generation. And there are several ways that they may have landed here. There may have been a season of forgetfulness. Maybe they've heard the stories of God's provision before, but it never really sank in deep um, into the soil of their hearts. And so they don't remember Maybe um, they had never been told in the first place. The generations that came before forgot to tell about God's faithfulness and what he had done. Um, Maybe they never heard the stories in the first place. But we can identify with this idea. There are a lot of ways in which we kind of move into our modern day era that we think that the challenges and the difficulty and the opportunity that we have for failure is new and that nobody else has been here before. The truth is the context is different The context is different, but the issues are still the same. We still have the opportunity, whether we're going to submit our lives in submission to the Lord and follow him in terrain that looks unfamiliar, but his hand is guaranteed to be steady the entire way. Or we have the opportunity to turn toward ourselves and try and forge that way on our own. It's a new generation, but the same issues. We look at um, next in verses six through eight. And see what happens. Verse six says, Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water, so that you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give a drink to the congregation and to their cattle. So we see that God listens, he hears his people, he hears Moses when he goes to the tent of meeting, and then he responds. And he kind of gives this breakdown of what Aaron and Moses' response is to be to the people. He says four kind of action phrases here. He says to take the staff, and the staff that he's referring to is a staff that budded. It kind of showed God's provision and his ability to work life in the midst of death. It's a, a staff that was in the tent of meeting. So take the staff. This is kind of the idea of God's presence. He says, go get the people, get them together, get God's people together with the staff. And then he says to speak to the rock, talk to the rock, and then the, the rock will give them water, more than just the people need, but enough, enough for their cattle too. This initial response from Moses and Aaron, this is a good thing, right? The people come to Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron go before the Lord. They go to the tent of meeting. And it doesn't just say that they kind of walked up to the tent of meeting, hoping that God would show up and answer. It's, there's this posture of dependence that Moses and Aaron show before the Lord. 
So a need has been made known. Moses and Aaron go before the Lord and they bow on their faces before the Lord and then God shows up. His presence is there. And then his voice speaks. Take the staff, get the people, speak to the rock, give them water. This first step, this is textbook. This is exactly what God would desire for his people. It's exactly what he would desire for us. When we're met with a question, we're met with an issue, we're met with a need, we go before the Lord, bowing in humility before him, saying, God, you are the one that controls all things on all of the earth, and I trust you in this situation and in this moment. And this is exactly what we see Moses and Aaron doing. Now, while God listens and God responds, we see Moses' and Aaron's reaction. They're hearing, but they only halfway Listen, they hear, but they only halfway listen. Let's look at verses nine through 11. It says, and Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, hear now you rebels, shall we bring water for you from this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock with his staff twice and water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. So we see Moses' response here. Did he listen all the way? Did he hear God's words and then respond kind of in lockstep exactly with what God had intended for him to do? No, he literally did half of it. He gathered the staff before he left the presence of the Lord. He went before the people and he pulled them together, right? And instead of speaking to the rock and the rock pouring forth water, what did Moses do? He spoke to the people and he didn't speak words of life. He spoke words of condemnation. The rebel leader in this moment is blaming the rebels for their response to the Lord. So he took the staff, check. He got the people together, check. And then he spoke his mind. He acted out of anger. So while his first response was good, he started off on the right foot and going before the Lord. He had really poor follow through. He only partially obeyed, which partial obedience is not obedience at all. And there are times we tiptoe around trying to convince ourselves that we're following the direction that the Lord would have for us in our lives in a specific situation or in everyday life. And we convince ourselves that if we take a step in the right direction, then the rest of of follow through is just gonna come directly after it. Which with the first step that we take of intentionality going before the Lord, we have to follow through with that afterwards. It's almost like when Moses was going through this, he kind of had that whole scenario come back to his mind through Exodus 17 again, because in Exodus 17, that's what the Lord told Moses to do. He said, go and take your staff and strike the rock and then water's gonna pour forth. So Moses goes before the Lord this time and he changes the scenario, but it's almost like Moses is is working out a muscle memory. He goes back to the way that he did before, kind of assuming that the Lord would work the same way that he had, but he goes before it the entire way with his own aggression, his own agenda, his own anger. He says, look back at the text. This is uh, verse 10. He says, hear now you rebels, judgment, condemnation. Shall who, shall we bring water from this rock for you? So he's judging them and at the same time looking to be the one that they look to for provision, not to the Lord. Moses wanted God's provision, but he wanted it by his own means. He wanted the water, he wanted to provide for the people, but he wanted to go about it the way that he thought was best, the way that he thought would provide. 
It's almost like um, if, if we think back about the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, my mind automatically goes back to there. The Lord tells Abraham that he's gonna provide for him for generations to come. And through Abraham, the people of the earth would be blessed. And at the time, Abraham has no child. He and his wife, Sarah, are old. And they think there's no way for provision. But God has made a promise and God is always good to his promise, even when there's space for doubt, even when it, thinks, even when it seems like there is no hope. And so Abraham takes his, ser- his wife's servant, Hagar, and he looks to conceive, to make good on God's promise for himself in his own way, to achieve what God can do, but to achieve it on his own terms. This is the same type fashion that Moses is leaning into a couple centuries later. So he's hearing and only halfway listening. Then we get to verses 12 and 13. Look with me this morning. It says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. There are consequences for acting from unbelief. There are consequences for acting from unbelief. Moses, he didn't believe in God as the way that the passage reads out for us. His actions weren't just one of self-rebellion or carelessness or just kind of idly acting out of anger, but his actions showed a root disbelief in God. And the end result is that Moses doesn't get to lead God's people into the promised land. This journey that he now started some four decades earlier The consequence of not upholding the Lord, of putting him in his proper place, the consequence is that Moses will not get to take God's people into that land that they have been promised. He would not get his full inheritance. At this point, we see failure in Moses' life. Now, we don't see a whole lot other than this in the, in the scriptures that kind of point out flaw or failure in Moses. But this is one of these key seminal events that when we look at it and we see that Moses acted on his own accord and that the end result is that he wouldn't be able to kind of find completion in this 40-year journey that he's been on with God's people, the way that he has been God's prophet, God's mediator for his people. And now he's not gonna get to see him through to the finish line. This tells us a couple things. On on the front end, we look at it and we're like, man, that is a really severe consequence for one action. He may have lost his cool. He may not have had some self-control, but on the other side of it, man, surely God could have just looked at it and been like, you've worked really hard. This has been 40 years. You can take him across the finish line. You can take him into the promised land. But what we see here is that God named his offense, not as just him looking to, to kind of make his own way, But he says that Moses' chief offense is that he did not believe in God, that he didn't uphold him as holy. We can see that this failure, this idea, can be rooted in two different things, okay? This, This unbelief. We can have unbelief that is rooted in doubt. And doubt asks the question, will God do what he says he's going to do? Will God follow through? He's made this promise. His word tells us that this is what his character is like. And, and unbelief that's rooted in doubt says, I'm not really sure that he's gonna do that. I'm not really sure that it's gonna work out the way that he has said it's going to. 
And then we have unbelief that's rooted in pride. And pride says, I can do what God says he is going to do. Where doubt says, I'm not sure God's going to. Pride says, I can do what God has said that he is going to do. We have all found ourselves in this situation at some point in time. We can all identify with Moses in this area. We have acted from unbelief and we have experienced the consequences that follow. We can bring up certain situations in our own lives. We can think about the way relationships have been hurt, the effect on work environments, the effect on our neighborhoods, the effect on generations that have come from one experience, one act of unbelief that has led to consequences that have carried on for generations. We can identify with, Mo- with where Moses is. We see Moses in this place where he is actually putting himself in the place of God. His unbelief was, was putting himself in a place where he was the one who would judge, calling them rebels. He is the one who would provide striking the rock with his staff in order that water would come forth. We see even in the way that Moses talked to the people here, he says, listen up, listen, you people, give us your ears. He strikes the rock, bringing their attention to exactly the point where he was. Look at us, listen to us with your ears. Look at us with your eyes. We are going to bring water forth for you. We're going to fill your appetites and you will praise us in return. Moses puts himself in the place of God as judge and as provider. We see this sense of self-reliance deep in the heart of Moses in this one simple act toward the end of his life. We see that God wants us, just like he wanted Moses, to live from the belief that God is who he says he is and God will do what he says he is going to do. God wants us to believe that he is who he says he is and that God is going to do what he says he is going to do. And we know this. We know this about God because he shows us in the person of Jesus on the cross. That God promised at the point of sin when it first came into the world, man's rebellion against God, that he would make a way for man in his flawed state to come before a perfect and holy God. He promised, and he made good on that promise by coming to earth, by living in perfection in our place with an unhindered relationship between himself and the Father. And then he paid the price because sin always brings about death. He paid the price for our offenses towards God. So God promised that he would make a way. Jesus came and made a way through his life, through his death, and then he rose from the grave, defeating sin, defeating death, that we could have life and have it abundantly through his name. God is who he says he is, and he always does what he says he's going to do. Now, that doesn't always necessarily play out by our agenda. If you pulled out your phone and you had like your, your calendar of how you thought God was gonna act and in the ways that he thought he, you, he was going to act or you pulled out your to-do list and it was not just your to-do list, it was God's to-do list, this isn't the way that things play out. God is who he says he is, not who we want to make him to be. And he does what he says he will do, not what we think we should fashion him into doing. God is faithful to himself for his own glory, but ultimately, friends, for what? For our good. The fact that God is who he says he is is the best thing he can be for us. 
The fact that God does what he says he will do, even in circumstances that seem impossible, is God's best for us. Instead of this, we live from our own, from belief in our own ability. We don't believe that God is who he says he is or that he is going to do what he says he's going to do. But we live from belief in our own ability. We see Moses standing next to this big rock like he's at Moss Rock Preserve is kind of what stands out in my mind. You see these big boulders and he's standing there with his staff and he strikes it. He's, he's acting out of belief in his own ability that he's going to do something and something is going to happen. The end result is going to be what he wants and what the people want. And we see ourselves standing in his sandals next to that rock doing those same things in our lives in a thousand different ways. Watch me act. Watch me do. Watch me do what I say I'm going to do for my good because I know what's best. That's how we stand in those sandals next to that rock with that staff and hit it saying the exact same thing. I will provide And we experience the consequences that go along with it. We experience it both internally through conviction that comes by the Spirit for those of us that have placed our faith in the good news of Jesus, that he loves sinners and that he came for us. His Holy Spirit lives inside of us and he convicts us of those times when we're living in unbelief, where we're pushing toward failure, where we've actually failed and the, the spirit calls us back in kindness and gentleness towards in repentance towards God in relationship with him. And then we see the effects of that in our relationships with those people that are around us. We see it in the offense of our neighbor, in the offense of our child, in the offense of our spouse, in the offense of our coworker or our boss. We see, just like Moses saw, that there are consequences for actions that come from unbelief. I don't have to tell you this, but we have to not avoid it. I don't have to tell you it because we've all experienced it, but we can't avoid it because if we miss the consequence that come from our actions of unbelief, then we miss the gentleness in which the Lord calls us back toward belief where he gently, as a loving father, comes toward us in small, intricate ways to draw us back into relationship with himself, away from unbelief and striking the rock on our own to going toward him as the one who is Jesus himself has been struck on our behalf to give living water without end. He gently calls us back into relationship with himself. There is redemption in the midst of failure. We see this even in the life of Moses. We see that God is always with his people, always, all the time, God is with his people. He was still with Moses even after his failure and disobedience. He didn't cut him off. We see even after this one encounter, if you look at at chapter 20, verse 13, the way that last sentence ends, it says that God still showed himself holy before his people. Even in the midst of, of, of Moses' disobedience, and his unbelief, God still showed himself holy in that situation. It's almost as if Moses stood before the people, they expected him to provide, he struck the rock, but then the water came out. And in that moment, they knew that no rock, no, no staff against a rock is gonna provide water by itself. But God is the one who provides all things for his people. All things that he knows that we need in our deepest deepest desires, our deepest parts of us. 
The relationship, it was still present, but the consequences were evident between Moses and God. We do see, though, that Moses got more than he deserved. So the consequence was that Moses would not inherit the promised land. But if you'll flip with me, um, would not lead the people into the promised land. But if you'll flip with me to um, Deuteronomy chapter 34, this is at the very end of of Moses' life. Deuteronomy chapter 34, and we're going to start in verse verse 1. It says, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is the opposite of Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. The Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, generations back, to Isaac, generations back, to Jacob, generations back. I will give it to your offspring. I've let let you see it with your own eyes, but you shall not go over there. After um, this section, we see that Moses, uh, Moses died. He led the people faithfully at the ripe old age of 120, the scriptures describe him as a man who was very strong, who was still of sound mind. His eyes were, were, um, were undimmed, is the way that the scriptures read. And that he died on that mountain. That in some way, God provided his burial for Moses on the top of that mountain. But before he died, though he wasn't able to, to go into that promised land, God gave him a glimpse Moses followed God to the mountaintop where he saw the promise of God made real in his life because of his death and in the land. That that wandering around that he had been doing with God's people in the desert for 40 years, he got to see that land. Now, the, the, the places that are mentioned here in Deuteronomy 34, he likely is not able to see all of the promised land. But the way the writers of the scriptures kind of interpret it for us or, or write it for us, they say that this is a representation of all God's goodness for his people in which they had been wandering. God's provision, making good on his promise. And Moses got to see it with his own eyes. And while Moses followed God to that mountaintop where he saw God's promise made real in his life and in the land, still yet we have Jesus who went to the mountaintop and fulfilled God's promise for us in himself. In himself. That when we die, those of us who have placed our faith and hope in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we would truly be alive for the first time in the presence of God. That God would make good on the promise that he has made, that man would not live in separation from God, but would have uninterrupted relationship with him because of the person of Jesus Christ. While the rock was struck to provide physical water, Jesus is the rock that was struck for us to provide living water without end. John uh, chapter four, verses 13 and 14. This is Jesus and the, the woman at the well. This is a really interesting kind of case study of what we're talking about in terms of, of life and failure. 
Jesus goes up to the woman at the well and he starts talking to her. There's all sorts of kind of cultural norms that are broken in this one encounter that Jesus has with the woman. But he starts talking to her. He starts talking to her about, um, about things that maybe highlight the woman's own failure in her life. Is, um, is she married? Is the man she's living with currently married? Has she been married multiple times? Kind of all these ideas of failure kind of come to the surface, both when we read the woman's story and likely whenever Jesus was talking to her. But as Jesus continues to speak with her, he says in verses 13 and 14 of chapter four, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. They're sitting at a well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That in himself, Jesus provides our deepest need. That he is that provision of God for us. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, for I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under a cloud and all passed through the seas, talking about Israel, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Jesus Christ. That God's ultimate provision in every way for all people has been himself and the person of Christ. So while we start off in here kind of rallying around the idea that we can all connect on the level of failure, we have to also rally around the idea that in the midst of that failure, God births hope through the person of Jesus. That we're not left on our own devices to continually try and cover and shovel over the things that we're disappointed about, that we're shameful of, that we have regret over, where we've offended others and offended God. But God covers over that with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. He does the work. But we still live with the consequences. While God does the work through his son, Jesus Christ, of creating a way for our sin to be covered, for us to have right relationship with God. There are still consequences that we live in here and now. The consequences that we live with are now, but they are not forever, friends, when we are in Christ. The consequences that we live with from failure, they're for now, but they are not forever. There are things that I have said to my wife, Holly, that she will never be able to unhear. They're in there. And you may be able to identify with this in some way. There are things that I've said that I regret. If there's a way that I could kind of reach into the recesses of her memory bank and pull those things out, I would. I'm not proud of them. There are things that I have said to our kids that man, it's, it's like one of those moments that I'll sarcastically say after it happens, I'm, I just got the parent of the year award there. There are things that I wish I could reach into and pull those things out. But the, the truth of the reality is, is I can't pull those things out of Holly's head. I, I can't pull them out of our kids' heads. There are consequences that are going to come potentially from the way that I've acted toward them and act toward others. But how I respond to my consequences how I respond to those failures, it reveals the condition of my heart. How I respond to my failures reveals the condition of my heart. See, when we live in the consequences of our failure, it reminds us um, of this shadow that we're living in. It reminds us of the light that is shining on the other side of our failure, that there is hope in the midst of it. And while I can't reach into my kid's head or reach into Holly's head and pull those things out, 
There is hope in the midst of it that God would bring about restoration, that God would bring about redemption, that God would bring about hope and restoration in that relationship. But I can only be responsible for who? For me and how I respond in the midst of my failure. We have to live as people who are following Christ and the consequences of our failure with the companions that God has given us. His grace toward us, his kindness toward us that draw us into repentance, that draw us into a restored and right relationship with himself. It'd be easy for me to fail, feel the consequences and blame shift. For me to fail and feel the consequences and justify, I was right in doing this. To fail, feel the consequences and then act like it never happened and just kind of gloss over it. When in reality, in the midst of our failure, what is shown of our hearts, it reveals our true condition. Are we still trying to self-preserve? Are we trying to paddle water up when a life preserver is standing right next to us in the water where we can pull and find salvation and be restored? Are we wearing ourselves out trying to keep our head above water? In Christ, our failure is always, every single time, every single time, it's met with the hope of redemption. James uh, chapter four and First Peter chapter five, they um, quote the Proverbs when it says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So I would ask us this morning, as we're confronted with failure and consequence in our own lives, how are we responding to those? Are we responding by trying to keep our head above water? By trying to bolster up and say, I can make this right, I can do this on my own, I can provide for myself again? Or does it bring us to a place of humility before the Lord because he sees the, the true condition of our heart? Are we drawn into belief that God is who he says he is? That he holds all of creation, all of time in his hands and that he works in our midst for his own glory and for our good. Do we believe that God is who he says he is? And do we believe that God is going to do what he says he is going to do, even when it doesn't make sense, even when we're living in consequences of our failure. God has given us access to himself for restored relationship because he desires that we would have restored relationship with those in whom we failed, with those in whom the consequences are being borne out. And just as we can only be responsible for ourselves, we have to be responsible in the way in which we approach the Lord and we approach those in whom we've offended and those in whom we failed. But we do so with an attitude of humility that we would receive that grace that comes from the Lord. We are able to honestly approach our unbelief, our doubt, our pride, and no need, have no need to compensate for it in Jesus. 
I am not all powerful. I can't do everything. I'm not able to. I'm not all knowing. I don't know everything at every time and know the right response when it's there. I'm not all present. I can't be in every situation whenever it comes down the path to do the right thing at the right time. And there are actually times where I don't care what I know or what I can do or where I am. I'm gonna dive into what I think is best for me every single time. But in Christ, all of these things, power, presence, knowledge, all of these things are found for me. In Christ, I'm able to live in my humanness, in my brokenness, and uphold God as holy because he is there for us. As we look at this text this morning and we see Moses, it's easy to think, man, he was doing this for 40 years. Surely he had gotten his act together by then. There are those of us in this room that you've been following Jesus for 40 years. I've been following Jesus for about 20. And there are times when I look at my life and I think, man, you would have thought that I know better by now. I have failed God again. I have failed my friends again. I have failed my, my spouse again. And I'm living in those consequences. This morning, we see the hope that God has provided to Moses in the midst of just seeing that vision of the land. This morning, God has let us see the vision of Christ who is hope for us in the midst of our failures. Don't avoid them. Don't sweep them. Find Jesus right in the middle of them. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we thank you for your word and how from cover to cover we read of your character, of your faithfulness, of your love for us as rebels who have pushed our hands against you and how you have sent Jesus to be the full expression of that love for us. God, for those of us this morning that we feel like we keep living in failure over and over and over again, and we're doing so because we are apart from you. We don't have a relationship with you through the person of Jesus Christ. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the work that he does in unveiling those eyes that they may see the goodness of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as your word tells us. God, we pray for salvation who are living under the condemnation of failure apart from your son, Jesus. But for those of us this morning that we experience failure as your sons and daughters, Father, I pray that you would um, remind us of the hope that is standing directly in front of us in the person of Christ. That we would acknowledge our brokenness, we would acknowledge our flawed state, and we would come to you as our good Father asking for forgiveness, believing that you are who you say you are and have done in Jesus what you said you were going to do. We trust you, God, together this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.